Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week in our series through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 6 and going through verse 17. If you're looking for that in your Bible, uh, you might be easier to find Matthew and then go maybe 20 or 30 pages toward the front. And you'll probably be around in Habakkuk at that point. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 6, picking up where we left off last week in our series going through the book of Habakkuk. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. I saw this week uh, that 27 years ago, on February 27th, Alanis Morissette released her hit song, Ironic, in which she asked the question, isn't it ironic? And then she lists a bunch of things that when you hear them, aren't actually ironic. Like rain on your wedding day. That's not ironic. It's unfortunate, yes, absolutely. But ironic, no, not really. But in the bridge of that song, that song that frankly isn't very good and shouldn't have ever been a hit, uh, she says this, Well, life has a funny way of sneaking up on you when you think everything's okay and everything's going right. And life has a funny way of helping you out when you think everything's gone wrong. In today's text, we see that God has a plan to sneak up on the Babylonians after they've conquered Judah. Throughout the book of Habakkuk, we've seen over and over that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The evil are winning. The wicked are prospering. And Habakkuk's crying out to the Lord saying, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you help us in the midst of this circ- these circumstances? And God's plan was to send the Babylonians not to help the people of Judah, but to conquer the people of Judah. That they might rule. Those who are even more wicked than the people of Judah already are going to come in and they're going to seemingly win the day. And last week we saw that God's plan in the midst of that was for his righteous people to be righteous, to live by faith. 
That even in the midst of all this pain, all this persecution that was going to come, all the heartache that was coming through the Babylonians, that there was going to be a remnant, a righteous people who would live by faith in God, even in the midst of all that pain and heartache around them. But today we're getting to really what God's ultimate plan is for the Babylonians. That though they come in, though they conquer, though they seem to win the day, that's not the end of their story. God is going to bring judgment against those wicked people. And that judgment, by which he is vindicated, is what we see in the text today. Just when the Babylonians think everything is going right, he is going to make everything go wrong for them. And just when the Israelites, they think everything has gone wrong, he's going to deliver justice against their enemies and his, helping them out in, you might say, a funny way. And God's woes... His actions against the Chaldeans, which we see in this text, they actually are ironic. Though if you're a Babylonian or someone receiving the judgment of God, you probably don't quite see that as God sneaking up on you in a funny way. Nevertheless, from today's text, we will see four ironic woes which are coming for the wicked. Four ironic woes for the wicked in today's text. And the first ironic woe for the wicked we see in this text today is that there is theft from the thief. As I've said, these are all ironic woes. They're things that you wouldn't expect to happen to this group of people in this way. God is taking the evil of the wicked and he's turning it back on their own head. And we saw the beginning of this last week when the very wine to which the proud man turns in celebration in verse 5 actually becomes for him a cup of wrath, which he is greedily drinking. These woes are meant to be ironic, to mock and to taunt the wicked Babylonians. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Shall not all these, the righteous who will live by faith, take up their taunt against him, the Chaldeans, with scoffing? And riddles for him. The substance of uh, this instance of these ironic woes that comes through in the English from the Hebrew translation, but the form doesn't really do that. The style doesn't really do that. Within these verses, these four woes to the Chaldeans, they're written in a prophetic poetry, but they've got more wordplay, more ironies, more allusions than most other passages like this do. There's even some rhyme in these passages, which doesn't usually happen in the Bible when you're reading the original language. The wicked Babylonians who are being judged here may appear to win the day. They may appear to rule the world, to come out on top. But eventually, they become the butt of God's joke. Even the word used to pronounce judgment against them. That word here used for woe, it's not so much a wailing lament. Woe are they. Feel sorry for them. It's more of a mocking laugh. One of the commentaries I read this week even translated it as ha. As in ha. The anvil which the coyote meant to kill the roadrunner has actually fallen on his own head. Ha. Woe to the coyote in that instance. And this first woe in our text, the first ha is coming against those who build using the resources of others. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Effectively, this man is a thief. He's taken that which doesn't belong to him and he's used that which didn't belong to him to build up everything that he now has. 
from the surrounding countries, the Babylonians have heaped up great wealth, great stature and power, stealing that which they shouldn't have to gain that which they don't deserve. And these pledges with which he loads himself, these are like taxes that are paid by the conquered people to the one who has conquered them. How he is gaining his wealth is by taking what isn't his, by raising funds and taking payments from the people that he's conquered. And now he's loaded himself with so many pledges, so many payments to the point that he actually couldn't handle anymore. He has all this wealth, which God is acknowledging. Yet that word for pledges could also be translated as heaps of mud. He has loaded himself down merely with heaps of mud. All the land that he has accumulated to himself is merely a heap of mud, God is saying. So the very thing which is making him rich is also something that's shown here to be worthless. It's just a heap of mud on which he's built himself. And therein lies his downfall. Verse 7, Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. God's warning that the Babylonians have got to see where this is headed. One people can only conquer so many before they're so outnumbered, so outmatched, that the conquerors themselves are going to be overthrown by the multitude that they've tried to rule, the multitude that they're now taxing into oblivion. All the people who have owed them, their debtors, will rise up and demand to now be repaid back what was taken from them. You've killed their men. You've taken their women. You've stolen their lands and turned them into slaves. And now they will turn the tables back on you. They were your spoil. And now you will be spoiled for them. And that's the fate of the thief here. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. There will be theft from the thief. The burglar shall be burgled. The plunderer shall be plundered. All the remnant of the many peoples left in their wake are going to make a remnant out of the Babylonians. That's the payment that they receive from God because of the blood of man that they have shed. Because of the violence they have done to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. And as God is reversing these fortunes, as he's delivering this judgment, he's actually directly addressing the complaints of Habakkuk that he had in the beginning of the book. Habakkuk's crying out that he sees so much injustice. How are the wicked prospering? And this is God's answer. This is God's plan. The wicked don't prosper. The wicked receive these woes. Habakkuk has been crying out violence, and it seemed like God would not save. And yet, in this instance, we see that God does save, that he will save. And actually, through that irony, he will save through even more violence against a different people, against the perpetuators of violence. The Chaldeans are going to reap violence back on their own heads. So if you are the one who seals, if you're the one who uses the people around you for your own gain, If you're the one who only has whatever it is you do have on the backs of someone else. If you're the one who exacts too much interest. If you're the one who's leaving behind you a wake of the poor and oppressed who live in fear of your name. Like Ebenezer Scrooge. Then know that God sees you 
and God knows what you're doing. There will be theft from the thief. Whether in this age or in the one to come, your violence will be brought back on your own head at the hands of the Almighty God, and all that you have will be stripped from you. There will be theft from the thief. But there will also be rubble for the refuge. That's the second ironic woe we see today. There will be rubble for the refuge. This next woe is coming against the one whose gain is once again evil. He hasn't done what he has done in the way he should have done it. He's gotten everything he has on the backs of others. He's a robber baron in his own kingdom. But the emphasis here in verse 9 is not on the evil gain itself or how he got it. It's what he does with it once he has it. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. He's setting up his own house. His own lineage. His own dynasty. In the same way that a bird of prey would. As high as he can get it. As far away from those he preys upon as he possibly can. He places his nest up high on the mountain where he thinks no one could possibly reach him. What he's trying to do is trying to find safety. To be out of the reach of harm. Out of the reach of his consequences. Out of the reach of his enemies. Over and above even the God of the universe. He is building his own empire in evil. And doing all that he can to secure it so that his name, his family, will never leave that kind of life. That kind of luxury behind. And in doing so, he's actually sealed his own fate. Verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. By doing what he has done, by building that wealth in that way, by doing whatever he did to secure it, what he actually did was bring shame upon his house rather than honor. All his plans, all his machinations, all his schemes to build his legacy. They're not ultimately going to result in honor and glory. They're going to end in his own shame. And that's due to how he did it. By building his own family legacy on the backs of other people. By cutting them off from having that same opportunity. What he has done is he has forfeited his own life. By trying to take that same security and legacy from everyone else. By trying to take their very lives, he has given up his own. So now, all that he has built is going to fall down around him. Verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. His house is going to fall. It's coming down. That's what this verse is poetically saying. The house that you've tried to build. The place where you have placed all your hopes and dreams, all of your wealth and security. This refuge that you have tried so hard to build on the backs of everybody else. It's all going to come crashing down. There is rubble coming for this refuge. The stone which was part of the wall now cries out. It now separates from the other stones in the wall. The beam which is central to the woodwork, that responds in kind. It's all crying out. It's all coming apart at the seams. From this we can see how fragile are the things that we labor and toil away our lives to try and build. We can work for so hard, for so long, 
trying to get ahead. And yet, somehow, according to these verses, if we do that on the backs of everyone else, if we're only at the top of the mountain because we stepped on everyone else's heads to get there, we actually bring shame to ourselves and our families rather than honor. The Babylonians conquered this corner of the world relatively quickly in the terms of human history, merely a few decades. But it was through painstaking war and oppression, by them ruling with an iron fist every single people that they fought against, by them gathering all nations to themselves like in a net. That's how they did it. And because they did it that way, everything that they built is going to come down. It doesn't matter how big the empire might be, how strong it might appear. It's not going to last. That kind of refuge, that kind of security is actually only going to end in rubble for the Babylonians here. And there's a similar fate for the founder in this next woe. There is futility coming for the founder. That's the third ironic woe from our text this morning. Futility for the founder. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The one receiving God's judgment in these verses is the one who once again has built something using evil means. The first woe was against the one who has personally gained through evil. Then we looked at the one who has gotten ahead with his family through building on the backs of others through evil. And now we get to the one who has built now not just his own life or that of his family in line, but that of the city, of the town on iniquity. A people founded in sin. He's built an entire community with blood and violence. The city has been founded on iniquity down to its foundations. Sin and evil are the core values, the core purpose for bringing these people together and making them into a people. This one, this person, will do whatever it takes to get the best and the biggest that they can. I mean, what's a little bloodshed if it ends in utopia? You've got to crack a few skulls to make an omelet, right? I think that's the saying. Crack a few skulls to found a city, maybe? It's manifest destiny, isn't it? Merely survival of the fittest. This is what it takes to have this kind of empire, doesn't it? Therefore, whatever means you have to go through, justify those ends. And I recognize this morning that as we hear these woes, as I'm going through this, you're thinking, there hasn't been a single thing here that applies to me. I haven't conquered a single nation in my lifetime. I haven't done any of these things. I don't have an empire that I've built on the backs of other people. And yet, though we might be tempted to think that God is only talking about the Chaldeans, that he's only talking about sinful heathens, that he's only talking about someone else. This same idea that he will bring woe against the one who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, that's a nonpartisan threat. That's not something he only said in this instance. Not something he only said about the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. It's not something he's only saying about someone else. Before Habakkuk wrote these words against the big bad Babylonians, Micah, another prophet in your Bible, wrote these same words against God's own people. Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 say this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, 
and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. So this judgment just doesn't come against someone else. It comes against whoever is doing this, against whoever is party to this, and all the many ways that it might look and appear whenever you are building a town in blood and founding a city on iniquity. So I don't think we can let ourselves off the hook this morning. These ironic woes, they're not coming against a specific race, a specific country in the past. They're coming against a specific type of people, a specific sinner. The proud ones from last week that we talked about, whose ways end in death and whose ways look like founding cities in blood and towns on iniquity. If you are the one who builds on the backs of others, if you're the one who raises yourself up in safety at the expense of everybody else, if you're the one who will do whatever it takes for you to get what you want, then these woes are for you. These ironies are coming back on your own head. And when we are counted among that number, It's so easy for us to forget that there is a God who holds all things and works all things according to his own purposes. Verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? You see, the the ones who have founded this place in evil, their work ends in futility. They're laboring, they're working, they're building merely what? For fire. All that they've built, all that they've worked so hard to achieve, so hard to maintain, all of it's going to be burned away, God says. And all of this is from God himself. Entire nations are wearing themselves out in all their toil just to arrive at their appointed end, which is nothing. Futility. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Habakkuk has been asking throughout this book over and over, what could possibly be the plan of God, which includes the prosperity of the wicked? And here Habakkuk gets his answer. The wicked aren't prospering. They're spinning their wheels. They're actually digging their own graves. They're building as much, as high, as big as they can. And actually, as they do so, they're just making the bonfire even larger to which they're going to be a part of. Because they've forgotten the God who holds all things. They've forgotten that there is one who sees all that they have done. And he is the one who holds the scales of justice in his hands. They've forgotten that that bill will one day come due. They've forgotten that the means never, or the ends actually never do justify the means. And that's especially true if the end to which you are working is only yourself. 
These people have simply forgotten God. And God will not be forgotten. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These Babylonians, they may not know him, but they will. They may not understand his justice, but they're going to experience it firsthand. The entire earth will know this God and his justice. As the waters cover the sea, so will the knowledge of him cover the earth. There's no sea without water. And there will be no earth without the knowledge of his glory. From corner to corner, east to west, north to south, The globe will be filled with the same knowledge. And with his knowledge will come his glory. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at his name. And that phrase, this verse, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That phrase is one that bears with it, I think, a lot of fear, but also promise at the same time. You see, for the one who is an enemy of God, the one who is founding cities on iniquity, you read that and you're supposed to be afraid. There's fear there. Just as there was for the people of God in Numbers when he used this same phrase against them back older in the Old Testament. Numbers 14 verses 20 through 23 say this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. To fill the earth with the glory of God is to see his glorious presence. Yes, absolutely. But it's also to see his justice. Also to see the fullness of who he is. And if you're in the crosshairs of that justice. Then the fact that his knowledge will cover the earth. Is a very scary idea. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's nowhere you might hide to get away from that knowledge. From that glory. From that holiness. And yet... There's also a glorious hope which comes with that same idea, with that same phrase for God's people. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9 say this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, when the promise of this verse is seen in its fullness, the final result of the knowledge of the glory of God covering the entire earth is peace, not judgment. When you're not in the crosshairs of God's justice, but rather in the warm embrace of his grace, you can rest easy 
knowing that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day cover everything that you now see. Even the most natural of enemies, even the scariest of circumstances, even the most vulnerable among us experiences no pain, no violence, no danger in that glorious presence. The wolf and the sheep gather together. The baby and the cobra have no enmity between them. And I recognize that we haven't seen this yet. This promise was given to Habakkuk. And it does have that twofold meaning. And that was given to us about 2,700 years ago. And yet we're still waiting for this, right? We haven't seen the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the entire earth. We haven't seen the wolf and the sheep laying down together. We're still waiting for it. But I think waiting for it is exactly what we're supposed to do, right? We've already seen that in Habakkuk 2. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come for still the vision. This vision awaits its appointed time. You can't speed up this vision of the glory and peace of God. But I think you can prepare for it. You can be ready for it. You can be sure that when you hear that phrase, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters, as the, as the waters cover the sea. That when you hear that phrase, your first thought isn't fear. Your first thought isn't, oh no. Your first thought is, oh when? Oh, I can't wait. Let that day be now. Let it be today. You can make sure that you're hearing this as a glorious promise as it is in Isaiah, rather than that ominous threat that comes through numbers. And that can be true. That can happen by the grace of God given to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who died for sinners just like these in this text, just like these in this room. The people who deserve these same woes might not receive those same woes delivered back on their heads, but they might receive, ironically, the glory of God given to them in the place of their own sin. By the grace of God given to you through Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, who can give you his imperishable life, you can now wait for that day in hope. You can trust that you will receive that same peace that's experienced by the wolf and the lamb. You can avoid this woe and all the others in this text and in every text. All the futility which is coming for the founder. But you can also avoid the final ironic woe that we will see in our text today. That there is destruction for the drinker. That's the, the fourth and final woe in these verses. That there is destruction coming for the drinker. Whereas the other woes, these mocking ahas, came against people for their own internal evil, how they got their gain, what they do with it, this one seems to come against them for how they deal with everyone else around them. Verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. In this verse, I think we see a twofold abuse. First, he's making his neighbors drink. 
And we saw last week how this metaphor of the cup goes beyond simply drinking alcohol, which can be done without necessarily sinning, without getting to the point where this has become sin. That doesn't necessarily mean that this cup is directly correlated to literal drunkenness and literal alcohol. But the cup here is a metaphor for the wrath of God that is coming against sinners. So, in this text, to make your neighbor drink of this cup is to cause your neighbor to sin. To bring them with you in your debauchery and in your doom. And in so doing, you might doom them like you have doomed yourself. And this idea that you're only, not only responsible for your own sin, but also for the sins which you make others commit is something we see in the teachings of Jesus, right? Luke 17, 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The woe is coming against the drinker here, not only for his own sin, but because he's bringing his neighbor with him in his sin, into the wrath of God. But look carefully at why he's causing his neighbor to sin. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Why? In order to gaze at their nakedness. So he's doing this in this word picture that we're getting in Habakkuk for his own enjoyment. He's getting them in a compromised state so that he can get what he wants out of them, so that he can look at them in their sinful state and in so doing, receive his own satisfaction. But don't miss the sexual nature of this description. God, through Habakkuk, I think is using this language intentionally here. Drunk, gazing, nakedness, shame, glory, uncircumcision. There's a sexual undertone to everything that we're seeing here. This is abuse. Rape. Intentionally and for the purpose of self-gratification, this man in this text, against whom God's woe is coming, is using, abusing, and discarding his neighbor with no care for their soul, with no care for their well-being. And statistics would tell us that every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. Every nine minutes, one of those victims is a child. One out of every six women is a victim of at least attempted rape. So if that is you today, if you're one of those numbers, if you know someone who is, if you love someone who is, I want you to be comforted by the idea that God sees and God is delivering judgment against that abuser, against that assaulter. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses three through six say this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The God of the universe will execute his perfect 
justice. And in so doing, he has called himself an avenger in these types of things, specifically. And if we look at human history, when one nation conquers another, when one people war with another, when one person thinks they might have unassailable power over another, we see so often this same dynamic. So we should be comforted seeing that God is acknowledging the facts of the evil that we see in the world, which is in the hearts of the Chaldeans who are coming and then are going to be judged. And we can be comforted by the fact that they don't win. They're going to receive what they have done back on their own heads. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Where they thought they could use and abuse their neighbor in order to build themselves up, to make themselves feel good. When they thought that they could drink the cup themselves and make another drink from it with no consequences. When they thought they could do all this and only come out stronger with more power, more satisfaction on the other side. They are going to be filled, but with shame rather than glory. Just as they did to others, God will do to them. They themselves will drink of the cup of this wrath to the point of drunkenness. Just as they gazed upon the nakedness of another, their uncircumcision. At that time, their blatant flaunting of God's laws. Their refusal to submit and be numbered among his people. That will be shown for all to see. The Lord will bring the cup of wrath in his right hand around to them himself. And what used to be the source of their pride, their own personal glory, is going to be replaced with utter shame. The word here that's used for utter shame is only used once in the entire Old Testament. And it's right here. You see, it's a compound word that takes the verb for vomit and adds it to the noun for shame and disgrace. So whereas before the Babylonian caused others to drink, that he might gaze on their nakedness and thus shame them. Now at the hand of God, he is going to drink so much that his own nakedness, his own uncircumcision is going to be exposed. And then he is going to spew out his own vomit out on his own nakedness, resulting in complete and utter shame in the place of what was his former glory. The Babylonians, the wicked in this text, they will receive back what they have done and worse. The abuser will receive back what he has done and worse. They're headed for destruction. Verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The violence done to Lebanon, to the place which in Scripture is usually a symbol of beauty, of prosperity. The the cedars of Lebanon, you'll hear over and over. The violence done to that place will overwhelm them as it comes back against them. Just as they destroyed even the beasts in their path and treated God's people like beasts themselves. Now those same beasts are going to trample them like a stampede. All this will come against them for the same reasons that we saw in the first woe. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, 
there's destruction coming for the drinker here in this verse. All of these woes are on their way against all the ungodly. Against anyone who is not a part of God's people. Who hasn't repented and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So if that's you today. There's a degree to which you should be sweating in your seat. I don't think of myself very often as like a hellfire and brimstone preacher. In fact, I would think of myself very often as exactly not a hellfire and brimstone type preacher. But hellfire and brimstone is exactly what is coming for those who are judged as sinners by the God of the universe. And if that's you, then these woes are exactly what you have coming for you. I can't get around that. As much as I might not want to talk about that, as much as I might not want to dwell on that, I've preached maybe longer today than I ever have here in this church. And I've been talking about this the whole time. I might not love doing that. But if I ignore it, I'm lying to you. And I won't do that. This is what is coming against all of the ungodly. Everyone who hasn't repented and believed in Jesus Christ. The God of the universe is pronouncing woe against all who commit these sins. And all of us do in one way or another. Maybe not to the full extent that we see in this verse, in this passage. But we all have committed similar to sins. So we have all of this coming against us, every single one of us. But God. But Christ. The perfect God of the universe saw that his own justice was going to result in my death. And so he took it from me. He stepped in. He interceded on my behalf to live the perfect life that I couldn't live. To avoid all of these woes himself, fulfilling perfectly his own justice, his own law, his own perfect righteousness and holiness. Because I couldn't do that. And then he received against himself all of his own justice. All of his own wrath. That every sin which the ungodly commit, which are going to be forgiven, was placed on him. So that in our wicked sinful place, the perfect righteous one might be judged on our behalf so that in our place rather than him keeping his own righteousness he gives it to us the woes that are coming against me have now been pronounced against him on the cross so now everything that he was owed all of the glory all the righteousness all of the perfection that he has earned for himself and already had in himself is now given to me through his substitution. It's applied to me by repentance and faith. So as we read this text, as we understand that there are woes coming against the ungodly, as vindicated as we might feel in the midst of that, we have to also acknowledge that without this same justice, we cannot be saved. Within this passage, there is not just the doom and gloom of justice against sinners. There is also the context for faith and redemption. Which we saw last week, right? Before we got to Habakkuk 2 verses 6 through 17, we did 2 verses 4 and 5 where we saw that the righteous live by faith. Not that they are righteous by themselves, but the righteous by their faith. 
I hope today that if you're sweating in your seat, you won't be next week. And I hope today that if you were comforted by this same justice, you'll remember why you can be comforted by that justice. Remember the God who has taken away that penalty from you, and you might live your life in response to that same gospel. That's my hope for us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word with your people, to hear your gospel. Thank you that though you are a just God who will deliver your justice against all of the ungodly, that we don't have to be counted among that number, not through our own perfection, but through yours, not through our own merit, but through yours. We love you and we thank you for this hope, even in a text like this. Help us, deliver us, and save us from this same judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.